I love books. In fact, if I were to guess, I would venture to say over the course of my life, I've probably read about 2,000 books on about every subject imaginable. Now, they tell us that inside this library, there are about 200,000 books. And so when I hear the number 200,000, I get really excited and I think to myself, there must be so much knowledge. There must be so much information. There must be so much inspiration in these four walls. Hey, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church Online. You are tuning in at the perfect time of the year. Not only are we beginning a new year, but we are also beginning a brand new sermon series called Long Story Short. And over the next 12 weeks, uh, we are going to be looking at the most unique book that has ever been written. Of course, we're talking about the Bible. And I want to talk a little bit about the Bible uh, this morning, just even before we open Scripture, um, to remind you um, that uh, this, oftentimes people think of this book as a rule book. And it's not a rule book. Uh, most, first and foremost, this is a storybook. It's God's storybook. It's the story of God uh, and how God has created the world and interacts with his creation over and over and over. And throughout the Bible, uh, we learn that this isn't just one story, but this is actually divided into 66 different narratives, uh, uh, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. The Bible was written on three continents in three different languages over 1,500 years. I mean, there's a lot going on in this book. Some of the authors of the Bible uh, were fishermen, some were farmers, some were poets, some were prophets, some were kings, some were generals. And it was written in a variety of different places. It was written sometimes in palaces, but it was also written in caves, and it was sometimes even written in prisons. Um, and so it was written in a variety of different contexts. You know, the other thing about the Bible is that there's so much controversial material in here. And you know, you know there's lots of history in here uh, that can be proved by historical uh, accounting. There's lots of science in the Bible uh, that can be scientifically proven. Uh, in the Bible, there's law, there's prophecy, um, there are gospels, there are epistles, and the Bible ends with this prophetic revelation. And so there's many authors writing over many topics over many years, but the one thing that holds the Bible together cover to cover is that there is one author directing it all, guiding it all through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiring human beings to write down God's word. These are the thoughts and the feelings of God himself. This is sometimes why we call this the word of God. Because while it was written by human hands, it was inspired, it was given to us from God himself. And that's what the Bible says. You know, something else that's unique about the Bible uh, is that it's living and active. In fact, when we read here in the book of Hebrews, uh, four, chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us uh, what's going on with this book. 
Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides the soul from the spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what this is really telling us is that we don't just read the Bible, but the Bible also reads us. See, the same Holy Spirit that guided the writers to write the Bible, that same Holy Spirit also helps you and me to understand uh, what is going on in Scripture. Now, the Bible, of course, is very, very complex. There's layers and layers of depth and understanding to, uh, to this scripture. According to rabbinic tradition, every single word in the Bible has over 600,000 meanings, which tells us that we can read the Bible every single day of our lives, learn something new, and then we pick it up again tomorrow on the last day of our life, and we can still see something new. It's, it's this wonderful book that is filled with complexity, and, and it's active, and it's living, and it's breathing. And so for the next 12 weeks, uh, we are going to spend time uh, not looking at the Bible under a microscope per se, but more like reading the Bible through a telescope. We're going to pan back a little bit. We're going to look at the overarching themes the, of, of the story of God. Um, it's almost like uh, reading the cliff notes of Scripture. I thought about calling this uh, sermon series, The Bible from 30,000 Feet Up. And I think the reason uh, why we need to pay attention uh, to reading the Bible from this level is because oftentimes we don't know how all the pieces fit together. See, many of us know stories from the Bible, bits and pieces, but think of the Bible more like a jigsaw puzzle, an 80,000 piece jigsaw puzzle, and you got to put them all together so that you can really see how it all fits together. That's what we're going to do for the next 12 weeks, is really see how all the stories of Scripture fit together. You know, the study of, uh, or the science and the study of reading Scripture and biblical interpretation, it's called hermeneutics. And the fundamental principle behind hermeneutics is text without context is pretext. And what that simply means is that if we don't know the context, if we don't know the, the bigger story, if we don't know what's called the meta-narrative of the Bible, we can easily misunderstand, we can easily misinterpret a scripture text. And it's so easy uh, for us and, and so many people to do as they're reading the Bible. It reminds me of a story, and maybe you've heard this story too, where a guy was looking for inspiration from the Bible. So he just started flipping through, and he just put his finger down, and he read it, and it said, And Judas went out and hung himself. And the guy thought to himself, well, that's not very inspiring. I should really read something else. So he did the same thing, this kind of whole, this flip through the pages, and he put his finger down, and it said, Go and do likewise. Of course, that's a, a silly example of how one might read the scripture, but I think it's probably in many ways not that far off from how many, for how many people do in fact read scripture. They don't understand how all the pieces fit together, and so they just look and read different stories all over the place, but they don't have a clear understanding for how the pieces fit together.
And so then what happens is a couple different things. When people don't understand the bigger story of God's story, number one is they just don't read it. People look at the Bible and go, it's too complicated. I don't understand it. There's too many bits and pieces. I don't know how they go together. So I'm just going to leave my Bible on the shelf. But another thing that people do as it relates to scripture is they just kind of pick and choose. And they don't really read the Bible so much, but they just kind of hang out on a couple different Bible verses. And they just think to themselves, well, I know the Bible. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Or they think to themselves, well, I know a, a verse in, in the book of Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or I know that verse in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that God has for me. And that becomes their understanding of who God is. Just these little snippets of scripture and they don't ever understand the full picture of what's going on in, in scripture. And so they misunderstand all sorts of things in life and who God is and God's plan for their life. And so hermeneutics is much more intentional. It's much more methodical. And the basic idea behind hermeneutics is that scripture interprets scripture. When we don't understand one particular passage, we ought to look at another passage and see how all the puzzle pieces fit together because this is one story. It's the story of God. And when we understand the meta-narrative, God's entire story, then we can be much more clear about what, how God wants us to fit into his story. So I'm going to invite us to pray, and then we're going to open God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a new day. We thank you for an opportunity to read your word. We thank you, God, that you have uh, penned these words uh, through fallible, uh, broken, sinful people. Um, and, and so, Lord, um, it, it's still your story. It's still inspired by you. It's still uh, communicating uh, your love for us and for all creation. And so, God, as we prepare to open your word, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go to Genesis 1-1. I think you can find it in your Bibles. Um, as you're going to Genesis 1-1, I just kind of want to remind you um, about what you're doing this morning. I'm guessing that none of you are feeling an overwhelming sense of motion. But at this moment, uh, as you're sitting on your couch or maybe even laying in bed, uh, you are sitting on a ball that is traveling at a thousand miles per hour. The earth will make a revolution uh, over the course of 24 hours. And you're not even going to hardly feel it uh, as you're uh, doing what you do today. But what I think is even more extraordinary is that we are living on planet Earth that is actually traveling through uh, the galaxy at 67,000 miles per hour. So, which tells you uh, on a day where you feel like you didn't accomplish a single thing, you need to be reminded that at least you move through uh, the universe at 1.3 million miles uh, of space. And so I want to ask you a question as you think about all that. Uh, 
When was the last time you thanked God for keeping us in orbit? I'm guessing probably never. And why is that? Why don't we thank God uh, for keeping us in orbit? I think it's because God is so good at what God does, and that is performing the really big miracles in life um, that we just kind of take them for granted. We just assume that God is going to perform a miracle each and every moment of each and every day by keeping us up in orbit. You know, the, the, the great uh, uh, scientist Albert Einstein once said, um, there's two ways to live your life as if nothing is a miracle or as if everything is a miracle. I believe in the second part, that everything is a miracle for sure. And the point, I think, of this illustration, uh, just reminding you of what's going on, even though we don't feel it, uh, even though we maybe don't experience it uh, in our day-to-day -day lives, that God is so big and that God is doing miracles all the time around us. And we just assume that God uh, is doing these miracles or that these miracles are happening. And all we have to do is trust God for the little miracles uh, in our lives. And so the story of God uh, really begins uh, with a paradox. It begins with this uh, idea, these two competing ideas, um, that God is so big um, that we can hardly get our minds about it. This is the, the theological term is called the transcendence of God. And, and simply it means that God is so big, so extraordinary, and can so powerful that God can accomplish so much that we just cannot even imagine uh, all that God uh, is, is able to do. But the, the, idea, the other idea that you uh, juxtapose with this idea of transcendence is that God is is also uh, so connected to all the tiny little details of our lives and of this world. And the theological term is imminence. It's God's imminence. And, and it simply means that, that God is so small. God is in the tiniest of details. God is so close to us uh, each and every moment and each of each and every day. And these two ideas um, go throughout uh, Genesis 1, um, and, and they're such big ideas, frankly, that it takes the rest of Scripture to really unpack the bigness of God and the imminence, the smallness, the closeness of God in our lives. So we're going to begin uh, with Genesis 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and it was the first day. Now, we're going to just stop there for a moment uh, because, frankly, those five verses uh, are, are enough uh, for us to cover this morning. Again, I'm going to give you another Albert Einstein quote. Uh, Einstein once said uh, that uh, science without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. 
And I believe in science. I don't think we need to uh, be blind. Uh, in fact, I think one of the things I love about science is how it's always catching up with Scripture, how Scripture tells us something, and then years, decades, centuries, thousands of years later, all of a sudden a scientist stands up and says, I have an idea, and he puts out his idea, and all along, Scripture has been saying that from the beginning of time. And so I think we embrace science. And, and you know, when you read the book of Genesis, especially Genesis 1-1, you can't help but your mind going to a science class. And that's a, what it seems like a lot what's going on here. So I just want to unpack some stuff here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. So when we hear, let there be light, we ought to just think of something so much bigger than just light. I wonder if we might even bring the science class into uh, this idea of light and let there be electromagnetic radiation with varying wavelengths traveling at 186,000 miles a second. Let there be ultraviolet and infrared. Let there be gamma rays and x-rays and radio waves and microwaves. Let there be photo photosynthesis and fiber optics. Let there be LASIK surgery and satellite communication. Let there be color and health and everything else. Light is the basis for all of life. That's what science tells us. Light is critical to everything that we experience every single day of our lives. And in these four words, let there be light, God speaks light into existence. And I think that's beautiful that God's story begins with these four words, let there be light. And ever since God spoke those four words, light has been coming into the world at a rate of 186,000 miles per second to overcome the darkness. In 1925, uh, Edwin Hubble, uh, another famous scientist, stood before the American Astronomical Society. And he put up a couple different ideas. The first idea is he said that the universe uh, is about uh, 90, 93 billion light years big or long or in diameter. But his second idea uh, was even more revolutionary uh, in 1925. He said, that's how big the universe is. But guess what else? It's getting bigger. It's still growing. And as we think about science and how the light continues to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger and expand our universe, that's what's going on when God says, let there be light. In the beginning, God uh, created the heavens and the earth, and God said, God spoke. 
You know, the Hebrew word for God said is Amar, and it really means literally God challenged. And I like that idea of how God challenged the darkness. God says, I'm going to have a challenge with the darkness and I'm going to bring my light. And there's this battle between light and darkness, God challenging, God speaking, and the light, of course, always overcomes the darkness. The great composer, uh, Leonard Bernstein, he said, you know, uh, there's even a better Hebrew definition uh, for Amar in the English language. He said, I think a better definition of Amar is to sing. And I like that as well, uh, because, of course, uh, it's this idea that God sings things into creation, that creation is literally God's song. Creation is God's masterpiece. Creation is God's symphony. And so oftentimes, as we think about uh, the science of bioacoustics, uh, we are reminded that there are millions of sounds, millions of uh, things singing all around us, and most of those things that we cannot hear because as human beings, we, have, we can only hear between about 20 and 20,000 hertz. Anything above that, and, and we just can't hear it, and anything below that, uh, those frequencies, we just can't hear it either. So, for example, right now there are whales underneath the ocean singing, and their and their their sound reverberates four thousand miles through the ocean, but we can't hear it. And at this very moment, there are earthworms making a sound that you and I simply can't hear. But with special equipment, scientists can hear the staccato that an earthworm makes. And so when we think about this idea of God speaking, God said, uh, uh, singing into creation, we need to be reminded that there are so many things that you and I, we just can't hear. But just because we can't hear them doesn't mean that God is not creating them uh, through his singing. You know, there's another um, physicist, a guy by the name of Aaron Summerfield. He's a, a German physicist. He's also a pianist. And uh, he said that the hydrogen atoms emit more than 100 frequencies than a music grand piano. And a grand piano emits only 88 frequencies. So hydrogen atoms are actually emitting more sounds than a grand piano. And the electron shell of the carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as the Gregorian chant. So you tell me that even though we can't hear these things, that there is not sound, there is not singing coming from them. It reminds me in, in Revelation 5.13, when John writes, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth singing. I don't think this is a, a future tense prophecy. I think that is a present tense reality. You and I just can't hear it. But in that moment in time when you and I cross the, the time space, base uh, threshold into eternity and join the church triumphant, I think we're going to be able to hear these things, things that we have never 
heard before. But as long as we're uh, on this earth living in this creation, we are going to be limited for how much we uh, can actually hear. You know, the Bible talks about mountains and trees clapping. Um, I don't think that's metaphorical. I think that's bioacoustical. God sings and the creation sings back. It's this call and response, this, this uh, partnership be between the creator and the creation. It's, it's almost liturgical and there's a cadence to it. You know, oftentimes when we think about sound, we think phonics. But that's really not a good way to think about uh, sound. What we really ought to be thinking about is physics. We ought to be thinking about the science. Because really, uh, the voices uh, we hear, sound is a function of energy. It's not just about what we hear, but it's the energy that goes through the air so that we can hear. God's voice is not just about speaking. God's voice is about creating. And when God speaks, God creates. And not only does he create when he speaks, but he heals and he encourages and he walks alongside us uh, through all that's going on. He convicts. Uh, he reveals things to us. And so oftentimes as we go through life and we can't hear the voice of God, sometimes we say that, I just can't hear God. I don't know what he wants me to do. I want to encourage you that God is still speaking, God is still creating, and I believe God is still singing. And sometimes we just can't hear what God is saying or uh, singing because the frequency is not in our human range. In the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. And I love this idea of how God uh, speaks, sings, and is creating the heavens and the earth. And, and we can guess about what the heavens are. But as we think about the earth, you know, something that comes to mind for us is the earth is pretty big, right? I mean, we think about the earth and it's 25,000 miles in circumference. The earth is pretty big. But you know, when you compare the Earth to Jupiter, uh, an even bigger planet in our solar system, we're reminded that Jupiter is a thousand times bigger than planet Earth in terms of volume. And so like, whoa, Jupiter's really big. But I want to remind you that the sun is even 10 times bigger than Jupiter. And you're thinking to yourself, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, the sun is really, really big. But did you know that the sun is actually classified as a small yellow dwarf star? There's a planet uh, out in space called Arcturus, which is an orange giant. And it's actually 10 times bigger than the sun, and it produces 180 times more energy. And now there's a star that's even bigger, and that star is called Antares. And it is classified as a red supergiant, and it is 10,000 times bigger than the sun. Of course, the point of just kind of illustrating all this through science is it's all a matter of perspective. In the grand scheme of things, we are pretty small. 
The universe is extraordinarily big. Again, according to Hubble, it's 93 billion light years across, and we're just this little speck flying through space. I think about the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, when he wrote in 50, uh, chapter 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher, uh, so your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are greater than my thoughts. Which is a great reminder for us that on the days that we think that we, we get God, that we understand God, that we are close to God in terms of understanding uh, all that's going on in this life and in the universe, that we are still 93 billion uh, light years away from God. So we, that ought to give us just a little bit of humility in our lives. God's big. God is so big that we just simply cannot get our minds around how big God is. And this is all drawn out, or drawn out uh, from the book of Genesis in these first five chapters. But not only is God transcendent beyond anything that we could imagine, but God is also imminent. God is so small and permeates all the details of all that is going on in this world. You know, before God created uh, the light uh, that we read about here, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I love this idea that the Spirit of God, we of course know the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit, is right there hovering over everything that's going on from the very beginning of time. And so we ask, you know, what do we learn about the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? And right here in Genesis 1-2, we learn that the Holy Spirit is present with God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is hovering right there. And I think there's a great theological insight for us to understand this idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit hovers it really is that simple. The Holy Spirit just kind of moves and floats over every part of our lives. The Holy Spirit is just that close to you and to me always. That's where the Holy Spirit was in the beginning of God's story. That's where the Holy Spirit continues to be today. And if you hear nothing else from this message, I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit is close to you. And I know you've got problems in your life. You've got relationship problems. You've got financial problems. Um, you've got job problems. Uh, you've got all sorts of uh, problems in your life, and I do too. But we need to be reminded from the very beginning of God's story that the Holy Spirit is right there hovering over our lives so close that we can hardly even imagine. Psalm 139 says it this way, Where can I go from your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, God? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and your right hand will hold me fast, even there your hand will guide me. 
If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light uh, become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day and the darkness is as light to you. And so what the psalmist is saying is, where can I go from your spirit, God? And the simple answer, what he says over and over throughout that psalm, is nowhere. I am as close as you could ever imagine that I would be. I am the, the breath that comes out of your mouth. That's how close I am. In Proverbs 18, the, uh, the, the writer says that God is closer than a brother. It's this relational idea that that's how God, how close God is to us. And of course, most of us are familiar with the passage in Revelation 3.20, where John sees this image of, of God standing at the door and knocking. Have you ever had God knocking on your door, saying, hey, I want to come in? And if you ever have, you know that that is one of the most transformational experiences of your life. And here's the thing, when God knocks on your door, you gotta open it and let him come in. He's not gonna just knock down the door and barge into your life. You need to open the door and invite him into your life and into your heart. You know, my prayer for you and for all of us in 2021, one, if you've never invited Jesus into your life, that you would just pray a, a four or five word prayer. Jesus, come, come on in. That, just that simple. It would just be a prayer like that. And that begins your relationship with God. Now, you're going to have a whole lot more to talk about with Jesus uh, throughout 2021, but that's where it all begins. That's where the relationship begins. It's just this opening of the door and saying, Jesus, come on in. I want to welcome you into my life. I'm going to jump ahead uh, to Genesis 1.26 to kind of close things out, uh, to kind of wrap things up a little bit. Genesis 1.26 says this, Let us make man in our image. And you've probably heard uh, that particular text before. And you've maybe even wondered, why does the writer use this language of us? Let us make man in our image. Of course, it's plural language. Of course, the answer is, it's Jesus. And in the very first chapter, Genesis 1, we hear about God the Father, God the Creator, God the Holy Spirit who's hovering, that's what he's doing. And we hear about Jesus who shows up. And I think over and over throughout Scripture, we hear this idea of Jesus speaking. Uh, oftentimes, we assume through God. Uh, but I think, in fact, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus was there uh, at the very creation story? 
Well, I think it comes from uh, the disciple, the Apostle John, who tells us very clearly uh, that Jesus was there at the creation story. Because when you line up Genesis 1-1 with John 1-1, you see very clearly John is trying to communicate to you and to me uh, that Jesus was there. John 1 begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made. And of course, John is telling the story of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem so long ago. But he's not just speaking about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He says, in the beginning, the very words of how the Old Testament book of Genesis begins. John is telling us very clearly, Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the beginning. And we go all the way back to Genesis 1, uh, 24. Let us make man uh, in, in, in our image. Pastor Louis Giglio, uh, he talks a little bit about this concept, and I, I like what he has to say. He says, you know, theologically, there is no B.C., what do we mean by that uh, when, it, when it comes to Jesus, there is no B.C.? Of course, our, our calendar says B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini, uh, at, in the year of our Lord. And, and for our calendar, that's fine. It's, it's 2021, right? 2021 A.D. Uh, that's how we measure time as human beings. But theologically, that is absolutely the wrong way. Uh, to think about the person of Jesus Christ. There is no B.C. There is only A.D. Every year from the beginning of time going all the way back to the book of Genesis is the year of our Lord. Because Jesus was there at the very, very beginning. You know, in the, the, the book of Genesis, Jesus is part of the Creator. Uh, he's part of the one who is creating things. In the book of Exodus, uh, Jesus is um, the deliverer. In the book of Leviticus, uh, he is the Passover lamb. In the book of Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In the book of Psalms, he is the good shepherd. In the book of Isaiah, he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. In the book of Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fire. In the book of Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. We could look at every single book in the Old Testament, and we could see the person of Jesus Christ, who is one with God in different names uh, throughout time and time again. And so I hope you hear Jesus was there. Jesus was there in the very beginning. And what I want you to hear more than anything in this message, uh, as we think about who Jesus was and, and is and continues to be in our lives, I want to read these words to you uh, from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Do you hear what that says? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. God has made you new.
But we can't really understand who Christ is today in your life and in my life if we don't understand who Christ is in Genesis 1 on the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, the seventh day, because all these pieces tie together in Scripture. Jesus is everywhere from Genesis through Revelation. He's in. He's part of God, and it's an idea that we're going to continue uh, to unpack over the next 12 weeks during our time together. But what I want you to hear is that Jesus is in the creation business. He's in the new creation business. And I know your life's not perfect. I know you've got struggles. I know you've got challenges. But what you need to know that if, if you are in Christ, he is making you new. And you know, sometimes you may not even feel it. Sometimes uh, you can't even see it. Sometimes you, you wonder, Jesus, where are you? I've got so much going on in my life. Where are you? It reminds me of, of yet another scientist, uh, Carl Jung, uh, who was a, a famous uh, psychologist. And uh, in his office at his university, he had a, a Latin phrase uh, over his doorway to his office. And translated into English, it simply said this, Bidden or not, God is here. In other words, whether you feel God or not, God is here. Whether you hear God or not, God is here. Whether you see God or not, God is here. Whether you experience God or not, God is still here. And so the question for you and for me as we begin God's story in 2021, January, is are we going to recognize that God is here? Because we can deny God all day long, and He's still going to be here. And so this is how God's story begins. It's this idea is that God is really, really big. He's so big that we cannot begin to fathom to get our minds around him. But God is also imminent. He is so small and he permeates every detail of your life, of this creation of all in time and history. And are we going to acknowledge him this year uh, as we start to unpack his story, uh, beginning with Genesis 1-1? Let us pray. God, we thank you that your story begins so big and yet so small. And God, I don't think it's a coincidence that you just, that's who you are. You are so big that we can't even get our minds around. But Lord, you are so close. You are so small. You are in the tiniest details uh, of, of our lives and in this world. And God, we thank you for science, the ways, Lord, in which science continues to try to catch up to all that you teach us in your word, the ways in which human beings have these great ideas. Uh, but Lord, you have been telling us these things from the very beginning. And Lord, I just, I celebrate science. I celebrate your word. I celebrate uh, all that you're doing. And, and most of all, God, I celebrate your story, that you are a God who has come to us and wants to meet us in and invites us uh, to acknowledge you, uh, even when we don't see, feel, think, or experience you. Bless us, Lord, as we continue uh, on our journey of your story uh, and how our lives intersect with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.